It's time to accelerate. Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 669, that's 669, of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I have two great conversations lined up for you today. Joining me first will be Brad Owens. Brad's the host of the Small Business Hiring Podcast. And following my talk with Brad will be another in my series of weekly conversations with my good friend Bridget Gleason. Today's show is brought to you in part by friends at Discover Org. The Discover Org platform is the game changer for sales and marketing professionals. The feature-rich sales intelligence platform is supported by more than 250 researchers who continually update contact data and provide account-specific insights to help sales and marketing teams break ahead of the pack. See the product live at discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. So my guest today says that the best companies don't hire, they attract. So that's the philosophy of Brad Owens, who is joining me first here. Brad is the self-styled Robin Hood of hiring, and we'll get into what that means. And then we'll dig deep into how to find and hire the best sales candidates. Actually, sales candidates that you want to hire. So among the topics we'll get into today are why your company needs a magnetic culture. You know, why you need to start there on your recruiting efforts. Why marketing and recruiting need to work side by side. And why you need to attract the type of person you want to hire. Not, not recruiting. How do you attract the type of candidate that you want to hire? And also, we'll talk about why Brad believes you need to throw out the standard interview process. All right, here we go. Brad Owens, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate uh, the, the platform. Oh, well, hey, we're going to hopefully have a great conversation for people today. So, you are the self-styled Robin Hood of hiring. That's me. So, I love, love when people give themselves, you know, I've interviewed, I've interviewed the Bruce Lee of sales and so on. So, <laughs> What makes you the red? I was going to say Red Riding Hood, the Robin Hood. <laughs> you could be the Red Riding Hood of hiring as well if you want to be, but Never we'll, maybe we'll start with the Robin Hood. So, what what makes you the Robin Hood of of uh, of hiring? All right, so I'll give you the little backstory here on me so that you can understand where I'm coming from. So, I spent a decade um, as an external recruiter, full cycle for Fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. So, I was finding them talent from. Straight out of school, all the way through C-level execs at some places, working with the big guys. I mean, Coca-Cola, Home Depot, Lowe's, Charles Schwab, mm-hmm. big guys. And in doing that, I call it my decade of beating my head against the wall. <laughs> These were companies that had every possible resource at their disposal that they just absolutely took for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have hiring practices that are just completely out of date, completely out of date. And you've got these smaller companies that are struggling to get even the basics of what these big companies have. So the reason I call myself the Robin Hood of hiring is because I take all of this knowledge that I've got from a decade of doing recruiting and seeing all the best hiring practices out there and doing my own podcast where I talk to companies that have built fantastic teams. I take all that knowledge and I apply it to the little guy. I apply it to the small business, the medium business. So I'm, I'm robbing from the rich and giving to the poor, basically. Okay. I thought maybe you're stealing talent from the rich companies and giving it to the small companies. So some of that too, but don't tell them. All right, yeah, I'm sure there is. <laughs> All right, so uh, this is a topic area that's you know fraught with <laughs> with problems and really ready for modernization in many respects. And and yeah, we run into a lot of the same issues with with trying to recruit talent or bring new candidates, new talent into your your. You know, corporation, your team, whatever it is, the same problem you have in selling. It's, it's unfortunately, it's driven by emotions as opposed to logic and rationale and data and so on. And companies haven't found a way to really mix and optimize the mix of those two in that whole thing. So, so let's let's talk first about identifying good candidates before we talk about interviewing and and so on. So, and you're and you're not alone in this. But I mean, more people are now saying, look. You really need to sort of shift the mix from relying purely on recruiting to attracting, mm-hmm. and so let's let's talk about that. What what's what's driving that? What's the impetus for that? So really, right now, it's all on what candidates are driven by. So you know, it's my full belief that the best companies don't hire; they attract. And if you can just switch your mindset to attracting, you mentioned sales. I think marketing and recruiting should be working side by side together. They should be working on employer branding. They should be working on attracting these kind of people. Now, the question is, what attracts? How do you get the right kind of candidates in? Well, there's a bunch of different things that people are motivated by to get a job, and one of which, a very, very tiny part of it, is money. 
You know, that's that's mm-hmm. the teeny tiny mm-hmm. part that everyone's like, oh, they're just coming here for the money. No, they're not. They're not. Uh, there's there's so much more that people are driven by. Uh, some of the big well, they don't they don't leave for the money either. I mean, the right studies have shown studies shown people leave primarily because of their managers. But yeah, right, you leave a boss. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So people are driven to find new jobs because of impact, because of growth. Because of the impact they can have. Right, exactly. So if they can tie their job to the bottom line of the company of, you know, I came in, did this project, this thing made us so many millions or whatever. Huge deal. People Mm -hmm. will be all over that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Growth. They're not going to be the same thing for the rest of their career. Challenge. Are they actually going to get to learn some new things? Uh, autonomy. Will you allow them to work and not hang all over their head and and you know be that micromanager? And then flexibility. Are you kind of the work environment that you know if you? I mean, I've talked to some companies that if they miss a, a soccer game or a recital, whatever it might be, that's a fireable offense at that company. <laughs> so, are you that kind of flexible work environment wait, where you can able to do those things? Wait, wait. They fire people if they leave work to get it, or they fire them if they actually miss the game. If they miss it. So they create that kind of culture that, hey, look, you better be doing these things that, that your family needs you there for. This is, that's more important than any work. We now, do. where is that company? Uh, so that company is actually local here to the Ohio market. I don't know if they want me to share all this stuff because they might get flooded with resumes. So it's and, local here to Ohio. Uh, they're, they're a smaller company uh, that does more development work. And, well, let's, I want to dig into that for a second. So are they successful? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, uh, roughly, roughly, roughly how many employees? Uh, right now, they've got about 28 employees. 28 employees. And are they in a service business or they sell a product? Service business. So they this, are purely not, in design. Okay. So not meant to be 20 questions, so on. Right now. But, but you could look at them and say outwardly, by any measure, that they have, they're successful. And they're doing this by, in part, by creating a culture that empowers their people to have the, the autonomy to make the decision to say, look, I need to be there for my kid's soccer game. I need to be there for this dance recital. I need to be there for this show. And actually, it's looked down on if you don't. Right. It's all in the culture that you create. I mean, you can say that you know, the best companies attract what attracts, a magnetic corporate culture. That's, that's pure and simple what it is. Well, yeah, we're going to get into that and define what that, that magnetic culture is because – yeah, I think that this is this is this ties to a lot of things that I I talk about, I write about, which is that companies have this this operating assumption that they just don't have time, right? Everything's pace of change is so rapid, and everything's you know revol- evolving so quickly that yeah, you know, we just don't have time for these things. We people have to work hard all the time, and yeah, you know, we're just gonna let give people the freedom to make the decision to go spend an hour at a kid's soccer. Game. Oh, we we can't have that. There's no time, and. And you know, one of the things that gets sacrificed, and this certainly plays in the corporate culture, is you know companies don't invest in educating their people the way they need to educate them. You know they do the cursory training, da 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 da. But so on an ongoing basis, I interviewed an entrepreneur whose company sets aside half hour every day. Work stops, and they all sit and read, and then they discuss what they read on a more periodic basis. But they half hour every day. I think it's like 20 minutes of reading and 10 minutes of writing in a journal about what they read. Now, I've talked to other managers about that. I would scoff at that. We, we couldn't afford to do that. Now, this guy's company is booming, right? And his employee retention is through the roof and so on. And to me, this is a similar to about with this company here. When These are the type of things that attract people to want to come work for you. The top people want to come work for you in those environments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly what they do. And you know, the, you're talking about uh, companies that might scoff at giving their employees a break or whatever. Look at the research. I mean, there's a reason that companies and you know, even societies, when we're talking about the, you know, they don't do the siesta anymore, but uh, you know, when the siesta was a thing, they were more productive when they took a forced break in the middle of the workday than they are now, now that they've removed it to be more like the United States culture. Sorry, we've got to create a bad culture here by expecting people to just pound out work time and time again. It's mm. it's better for your employees not to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's so define a magnetic culture because again, your premise is that the companies need to be attracting talent rather than relying purely on recruiting. And, I, and we'll again we'll get into this a little bit later. I think it's a a mix, but you certainly have to have the attraction part there. So it, but this is not something that you start 
when you're saying, oh, we need to go hire somebody, let's change our culture. This is something that sort of has to be operating independently. It's like, yeah, as part of our consideration of who we want to be as a company, this is one of these aspects is we want to make a corporate culture where people want to come work here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's the the fundamental thing that I think most companies miss. You can't... Mm, you can't not have a culture. You're creating one, whether you know it or not. Mm-hmm. It's the one you're creating that you need to make sure is the one you actually want to get out into the world, right? So this is, I did a talk once where I talk about you know, how you need to attract the kind of person that you want to work there. And that's where the distinction kind of separates itself uh, from different companies. Because if you're a a bodyguard company, you want to attract a different kind of person than a daycare, right? So you Mm -hmm. need to create a culture that attracts that kind of person. So how do you create this kind of culture? I don't think it has anything to do with the work environment, if I'm completely honest. I think all work environments need to have the same core uh, elements in them of this you know, autonomy, flexibility, impact, that sort of thing. You need to have that in every workplace that you're in. But if you want to attract people who are more inclined to want to work with children in a daycare, do social events that attract those kind of people that enjoy hanging out with children. Go to different networking events as a vendor, as a sponsor of things that are centered around children and being involved in the community. And the more that you're out at these places and start... Mm -hmm catching people where they already are, where you know they have an interest in the same thing that your business does, then you're going to start attracting the right kind of candidates because they're going to know more about you. So it's not posting out on Indeed and hoping the right person sees it. That's so antiquated, it's ridiculous. It's going out and actually being active about hunting for the right people that you want. It's never really stopping recruiting. Yeah, well, again, you're blending, and which I think people have to understand, and I'm not a criticism at all, is that that part of the attracting is is proactive as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not purely a reactive thing. But let's let's take a step back, though, because you said there's this assumption that you have this culture that rewards autonomy and the other things that you spoke about. And that's that's really the first step. That's not a given. And I think for hiring managers and entrepreneurs and CEOs that, that listen to this, you really have to take that to heart right away first. Is, is That is the baseline. Mm-hmm. You know, Everything that that may go beyond that, yeah, you want to hire a kid. Let's say you're in business where you serve, you know, kids, and you want to be in the go to the right events that you talked about. Yeah, if you don't have the other thing underlying it, that's just window dressing, and people can see through that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially these days with Glassdoor and all the other sites that are out there that can rate employers. Is you know, if you don't have, you know, if you're inauthentic like that, then people can see right through it. Yeah. So. So this is really a critical thing. Is I think that again, get back to what I sort of made before. Is is companies think they don't have time to do these type of things, and you really don't have time not to. Mm-hmm. And so, if you really want to be effective at attracting top talent, and and you made a point is you know hiring people that you want to have there is is I remember most successful entrepreneur I ever worked for and started a company that's now doing a couple billion dollars a year in revenue. Start from scratch bootstrapped it. Um, his thing was, you know, he wanted to hire people that he wanted to work with. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something people tend not to look at very often or attract people that they want to work with. You know, not, I want to hire this guy because he looks like a great salesperson. Yeah, but the guy's an ass, right? right. It's, it's, that's not what you want. It's value culture over other things. Tony Jan wrote his book, Good People. You know, to prioritize, hire good people. And I think I think the message is starting to get out there, but it obviously needs to be spread more widely. Well, yeah, well, let's pause on that a little bit because think about how the standard interview process and resume screening and everything else is set up. It's set up to screen for skills. It's set up to, mm-hmm. you know, you better have all these specific keywords in your resume or it's not getting through our screener at whatever this big Fortune 500 company is. Right. And then... When our HR person who knows nothing about this job is screening you, they're going to ask you if you know things about this job. They don't, right. They're just looking to make sure that you can talk about the kind of stuff they think you should be able to talk about. And then you get in front of the manager, they're doing the same thing. 
never once have you taken this person out to lunch, just asked them about how their life's going, what's going on outside of work, what they're into. Are they into the same music you are? Do they go to the same sports teams? Are they opposed as different basketball teams? It's like we are. I mean, it's, you never really know. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you need to go out and meet these people and actually understand them as people. Who cares about the skill set? You can teach them that. Well, you're, about the you're talking about meeting them before they come into this, your process. 100%. Yeah, hundred percent. Or even if they're in it, have a part of your process be a a cultural interview. Just have a couple people from the team go to lunch with the person, or right. and have it mandated. You can't talk about the job or anything else. This is specifically just to get to know the person. Yeah, I mean, I call those values and characters questions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, we don't tend to put it in stark terms because when you talk about values and character, suddenly people think you're being judgmental. But the fact is you have values as a corporation. I'm not talking about <laughs> necessarily the personal values, or, but it is personal. But I mean, that's fine. Not everybody is the same. Not everybody is meant you know, <laughs> to fit into the same organization. Do they have values and, and the character that align with, with your organization, the culture that you've hopefully consciously established, not what you sort of think, but you consciously have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm with you. And one of the big things that I do around here, uh, I have a core value for the business that's just called eat that frog. And it's have difficult conversations, get everything out on the table, just don't sit on something. Mm -hmm. And when I'm interviewing people, when I'm talking to people that I want to bring into the fold here, one of the first things I say is tell me about the last difficult conversation you had. And I want to know know, what came around that and and why they felt that it was difficult and what about sharing that information was difficult for them. Because the people who kind of stumble and just want to brush aside problems and push them under the rug, they don't fit in around here. It's that they're not going to enjoy being around us because we don't, we don't sugarcoat anything. We want to make sure that we're honest above anything else. So that knowing that about ourselves and about our values around here, make sure we don't hire people that don't fit in with that. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question because you can imagine a lot of people probably just try to evade it altogether, mm-hmm. right? As well, I haven't had a difficult conversation, so I'll, hmm, <laughs> that says a lot about you as an individual, yeah. right? You yeah. avoid those situations where you need to have the difficult conversations and be clear and direct. Yep. 100%. So, so when let's assume that we've put this culture in place and we have the magnetic culture, and now we want to attract candidates. You talked about you know going to events and so on, but what's sort of the the playbook for? attracting you know people that will fit and align with your corporate culture well the basics you need to make sure people know what it's like to work there so here's a here's a quiz for every business owner every other ceo whatever in your company right now type in your company name and then linkedin into google mm-hmm. if you do that the result for your company page on linkedin says find out what it's like to work at blank whatever your company is I guarantee you, if you're not focusing on this stuff, so probably about 90% of companies, if you click on that, your LinkedIn page says nothing about what it's like to work there. Sure. Simply just an advertisement for your company. Right. Um, even LinkedIn wants you to put this stuff out there on LinkedIn. Do it. Uh, you know, put something on your website. If I can't go to your website and go to your careers page or an about or whatever and find out what it's like to work there, you're going to lose out on candidates. Here's the, the four-step process that every single candidate who's really evaluating if they want to work for you will go through. Mm-hmm. Find your job ad somewhere on Indeed, Monster, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever they find it. Right. And they're going to read that. That's their very first introduction to you as a company. I guarantee if you look at those, again, 90% of the time, you will see just a straight list of a wish list for the company. Mm-hmm. There's no, here's what it's like to work here. Here's why you'd want to work for us over everyone else. There's none of that. Right. That's the very first step. Make sure that actually has something in there about what it's like to work there. Well, then they're going to go to your website. Yeah, so let's, let's stop. So yeah. people need to understand that's a marketing piece. Yes. So let's, that's, that's the distinction I think a lot of companies <laughs> fail to understand mm-hmm. is, yeah, people... People want to be sold, right? I mean, they they want to be convinced. They want to be influenced. They want to so market in that piece. Don't don't just as you said have a cold listing of a job description, right? Sell your job every chance you get, mm-hmm. every chance you get, and your company. And then you know, after they see that job description, they're going to go to your website. They're going to try and figure out more about you and what it's like to work there. They're going to go to a website that you have developed to be client or customer centric. They want to find out what it's like to work there. So you've got to look at your website and say, do, do I even address that at all? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then once they're there, you'll they'll find out your, your different social media profiles and they'll go to those. 
I've seen the best companies that I've interviewed that have been voted best place to work seven, eight times in a row. They have a what it's like to work here or life at whatever this company is social media profile. They'll have like an Instagram dedicated to that or, or Twitter page dedicated to that. And it's very clear what they value at their organization. And you know, they give everyone props for you know, different rec- different rewards they want or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And it just shows you they care about their people. They, they understand what it's like to work there and they want to advertise that. So you know, once they've gone through those steps, then you, know, you hit the popular at the glass doors, the Indeed. Right. Those have ratings for your company and they'll go out to those and make sure it's okay. And once they've done all that, then they might apply. So it's from the very start, it's, it's marketing, it's sales. Just like you said, you need to make sure you're selling your job of why people don't want to work there and getting that out using, you know, what all of this in together is called employer branding. That's people tend to think that's a, Oh, well, GE does that or Coke does that. No, everyone should be doing that on some level that you should know what it's like to work there. Well, the interesting thing is, is listening to you talk about that is that, yeah, the, the best candidates are going to go through that process. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's still the phenomenon of the fact of you know, people are just going to go through and they're going to go to every site and look for jobs and they're just going to paper you with resumes whether they fit right. the profile or not, right? Yeah. So, so it gets back to a question we had earlier is, okay, well, how do we really screen the people that are coming in that really are those people who put the effort in Say, yeah, I've done the research. I've looked at the social media profile for what it was like to work there. I've gone to the website. I've maybe gone to Glassdoor Indeed or one of those. And yeah, I want to be here. I think I'm a great fit. How do they make sure that that their resume gets the attention that it needs? So to screen for these types of candidates, you want to make sure that they've done their homework, right? So if you've got a hundred applications coming to you of people who are simply just sending you their resume, no cover letter, no nothing... You need a way to make sure that you don't have to pay attention to these people. Mm-hmm. So uh, instead of all of these standard, uh, you know, HR applicant tracking systems and everything else, I tell people to have just one little bit of homework. You know, the rule is no more than three clicks, no more than three minutes to do it. But if you can keep the one little tiny piece of homework under that, it does the screening for you. So what I suggest... Give ahead. an example. Give an example. So what I'd suggest most companies do, if you've gone through the process of making these core values, put in your job ad, not, notice I didn't say job description, job ad, marketing, sales. Um, you put somewhere in there and say, we will not look at resumes for this job. The only way that we want to see your resume is if you go to our website, you find a core value that you identify with and tell us why. Just that one little bit of homework, no more than three minutes. Like, how long is it going to take them to click through, find that, and then write you two sentences? It's just, it's very quick, very easy, but anyone who does that, you're going to have a good candidate on your hands. They're interested. They've done their research. They're thinking critically about your job and about your company. And it's going to be a person you want to respond to. I like that. I like that. Again, this is sort of a forcing function, though. It forces companies to go back. And if you're going to ask a core value question, (laughs) then you have to somewhere articulate your core values on your website. So yeah, everything's connected here. Yep, it really is. Interesting. All right, so let's let's because I want to walk you through the whole the whole process, and we don't have unlimited time. Is is so you've got somebody in? Let's say you've screened them. Looks like okay, they could be a fit, and understand it's just you know initial disqualification phase. What do you advise companies relative to assessments, uh, tests, and so on as part of the screening process before you bring in for interviews? So I get a lot of heat for this, but I stand behind it. I think any of the uh, Myers-Briggs, any of the personality tests, whatever it might be, are loads of bull. Now, I'll tell you why. (laughs) Hang on. Everyone who's like, what? I swear by those. Hang on. Uh, I've got a background in psychology. Part of my research projects uh, before I was able to graduate is I went through and actually did uh, validity tests on Mm -hmm. all of the personality exams and everything else. If you take these enough time with a large sample size, you will find that let's say there's a um, preferred outcome from one of these Myers-Briggs things. You would want to be outgoing, upbeat, and whatever. That's what your personality type you'd want it to be if you were taking this. Mm. Now, if enough people take this, you will find that the majority of people who are ranked in the better quote-unquote categories are middle-aged white men every time. Mm-hmm. 
that they're biased tests. So if you don't, if you want to hire a diverse workforce and everyone's right. like, oh, diversity in the workforce, whatever, 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 don't use the tests because they're going to bias you towards having a non-diverse workforce. So I don't think anyone should really use them because honestly, you could get whatever answer you got off of those and meet them and think something different in 30 seconds And this test took them and takes you to actually administer. So I don't think those are actually really good judge. Um, I like to give people some sort of, uh, you know, second test, second idea, second piece of homework. Mm -hmm. So they've done this little three minute thing that you've had in your, in your job ad, but let this, let's give them, Hey, we really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for that. We agree. It's a great value for us, but how about this? What do you have? A, we have a question around this. What do you think? And okay. you know, they start getting some more responses. And if they start engaging and they're, you're tracking along the same kind of values that you really like about your organization, then you'll get them through the next steps. So as far as tests go or, you know, actual, um, you know, deep learning type things that all these companies swear that they can do for you. I don't think so. I'd rather just put them through a test that you can judge yourself because it's your company. Oh yeah. No, I, <laughs> I agree on that. I think, I think assessments, at least in the sales space, I mean, I think there are some off the shelf assessments that are not predictive. I think mm -hmm. it's just a data point. And sure. at some point, if you're familiar with it, it's it's a data point. I think useful. I, useful. I think I agree with you 100 that if you're trying to use it as something that's a comprehensive indication of this person, then yeah, the company saw the validity and the predictiveness, <laughs> predictability, predictiveness, whatever of of those assessments. They're oversold. I agree 100. But I I think as a data point, at least I would urge people that to consider it because I talk to some companies they use. Not necessarily uh, personality tests. They may use an aptitude test of some sort that has some skill component to it. In which case, some of those can be can be useful. But I think, but I think testing is really important. Um, you know, if you've got a job with a specific skill that you think somebody needs to have, or a specific set of knowledge they need to have, then test it. Give them homework, mm -hmm. as you talked about, or bring them in and and you know ask them to perform. Uh, and I think that's perfectly valid. I think you're really missing something if you don't do that. Agreed. And, you know, you have to challenge yourself as well. So if this, we could have our own hour long conversation about my thoughts on this, but let me <laughs> try and keep it short. Um, the trainability of this person, I would think is a little bit more important than the skills that they have coming in. The only yes. thing that you're losing is speed and time. So you've got to think about the end product that you need from this person. Let's say you have a, um, you're a software development company and you have something going live within the next three weeks or month, or you need something pushed out in two months. You don't really have time to train this person up. So it's a yes, put them through a testing process uh, for anything that's highly skilled, something like that. You need to put, need to know that they know what they're doing. Uh, but you know, I really challenge companies, especially when unemployment is as low as it is right now, you need to be more flexible in who you can take. And the skill set's the first thing you should start flexing away. So mm -hmm. yeah, no, the, I, I agree. Yeah, so the highly skilled positions, yes, completely on board with you. I think there should be some sort of testing component, but but, but I think the testing, and I'll I'll make the the point about the testing. It's just the same as the assessment. It's just yes. a data point, right? It's just a data point. And the thing is, yeah. you're collecting data points throughout the entire process. I mean, your mm -hmm. first data point is your screen. And your second data point is, I mean, I know CEOs, multiple, you know, serial entrepreneur, hugely successful, who, you know. <laughs> Finally, got him away from doing this completely. But his his preliminary screen was always GPA. He didn't care how long somebody had been out of college, and it worked for him. Mm -hmm. Absolutely worked for him. But you know, finally got him to the point to understand what's well, a good data point for you. You want to use it as a, use it as a data point, but it's not decisive. And I think with with all this, it's like, yeah, what do, you want to really look at the sum total of these things because at some point you have to apply your judgment to it as well. No, you get all you can collect all the data you want, and then ultimately it becomes a, a judgment call as to whether you think this person is a fit or not. So, I believe with testing, you know, say you're selling in a technical space and you give somebody a test and you just want to understand what they know, that's fine. You can set a criteria. Look, they need to you know, score 70 on the test. That's fine. But it's a data point. And yeah. I had one client that, that we, uh, you know, we'd have people give presentations, they have to create a little you know, two slide PowerPoint presentation and and give a pitch. It wasn't purely on the quality, right? It was, you know, how well were they able to synthesize information? Did they have an innovative spin on it? Did they, you know, create a good value proposition in a short period of time? And then another client that, you know, what they did is supplement that by saying, okay, now we're gonna give you some coaching, to your point, we're gonna give you some coaching. And would they come back and 
uh, take the coaching into account the next time they did it. I like that. Yeah, that to me, to your point, hugely powerful, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, that's way more important. I love that. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Reference checks. Mm -hmm. I've got bugaboo about reference checks, but um, I think people do it at the wrong time. See, I've, I've always done reference checks before I bring people in for interviews. Because I think that, well, I know reference checks are a limited value of any way. Then they become less so because of laws and so on. But there are questions you can ask that are interesting. But most, you know, overwhelming majority of companies use them as sort of a validation of a decision they've already made as opposed to a discovery tool to understand whether it's a disqualification or qualification for the prospect. Uh, I would agree with that. Uh, And when you think about... Um, unconscious bias and talk about leaning into it when you mm-hmm. do reference checking, right? Mm-hmm. Let's make sure I was right. That's right. Then let's, let's have all these people, you know, make sure that they tell me I was right. Exactly. It just makes you feel better about your thing. It, it kind of removes the responsibility for yourself. <sighs> but let's throw another question out there. Sure. How many times have you found someone that is a good employee that has someone that's going to speak ill about them as a reference? They're, Who's going to do that? Uh, the people who have made it that far in your process, are they really going to give someone that says, I uh, was a boss that fired them that hates their guts? They're just not going to do it. We've had people choose their mom or you know their long lost cousin because they don't have the same last name, but they know that they're supposed to talk nice about this person. And we've, it's all over the place. Yeah, well, I think, I think the, ref, the, the context that people need to think about references in is you've got two or three good candidates you got small differentiation between them. The references might make a difference at that point. I mean, I have somebody who, uh, a recruiter actually, gave me this question which a long time ago, which I thought was a really interesting question to ask her references. is saying, you know, hey, if you were going to be this person's new boss, you know, what advice would you give them about where this person needs to, to work on and could improve? Mm-hmm. Well, it just gives you another data point, right? Yep. And I think that, that if you get good candidates, the differences are going to, hopefully, once they've got that far in your process, will be fairly small, is, again, it's a data point to help you make a decision. Right. Again, just collect all the data. Make sure you get it all in front of you and then make a decision. All right. So last one we get into before we have run out of time here is okay. interviewing. And, you know, companies are still horrible at this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you go, mm-hmm. <laughs> so what's your recommendation about how, how people should interview? Uh, oh my goodness. Okay. So hiring just in, t- in terms of interviewing completely broken, uh, I've done entire presentations. I think there's a tire an entire book <laughs> that I can write about this stuff. Uh, but let's keep it very short. Uh, I think behavioral interviewing is good in that you're asking situational questions. You're asking them about things that have happened in the past, but, um, everyone knows the star format is associated with behavioral interviewing. For some reason, interviewers have been using the star format. Um, it's not meant for you. It's meant for the interviewees so that they're less nervous about answering your awesome questions. So, we'll so explain to people what the star format is. So the star format is how you're supposed to answer a behavioral question. They give okay. you a question like, uh, tell me about a time when, fill in the blank. And the star interview format is supposed to be that the interviewee answers with the situation, tasks they had, the actions they took, and the results they garnered. Got it. So... That's for the interviewee, but for some reason, even companies, I'm sorry, I'm going to call them out. Coca-Cola has an interview process where they sit with a star uh, on their sheet in front of them while the person's answering their question and make sure they get to the S, the T, the A, and the R. You're not interviewing for the context of the question at that point. You're mm. interviewing for if they're in compliance with right. answering the question. Right, right, right. right. So, not great. So, I want to separate completely from behavioral interviewing. I've come up with what I call attributional interviewing. So attributional interviewing is from all the thousands and thousands of interviews that I've helped people through, helped companies perform, all of that. There are some attributes that have come out that pretty much guarantee, I'm not going to say guarantee, how about uh, almost guarantee, uh, that this person will be a fantastic long-term fit for you. So it's not that uh, you're looking for them to have a specific skill or whatever else. They need to make sure they have these attributes about them, things that aren't teachable that you can make sure that you can do something with. Uh, so things like their attitude, you mm-hmm. can't train someone's attitude. How many times have managers tried to say, Hey, you need to be a little bit nicer with this, or you need to be a little bit better about this. So I mean, you can't train that stuff. It's just not going to happen. Their aptitude. People just instinctively know how to come up to speed quickly. They've got a good learning process. They've developed something that they know how to come up to speed on. They can be put in a brand new environment and they can immediately learn it. And along the same lines, are they adaptable? Mm-hmm. Raise your hand if everything's the exact same about your business as it was a year ago. 
no one can say that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you need to have someone who's adaptable. Uh, And then one that's interesting is accomplishments. So they might have a skill set. Have they done anything with it? You can list a whole lot of cool uh, acronyms and whatever on your resume, but have you actually done anything with that? You got, it's like the kids that come out of college, right? They put every single thing they've learned of every single technology or whatever else, but they haven't done anything with it. Mm-hmm. Yet. So mean all that. Uh, so, you know, accomplishments. Uh, and then you've got uh, appreciation, which is an interesting one because people who are appreciative, humble of their accomplishments or things that have happened in the past or realize that they weren't in this altogether. This is a team effort. Right. They, they realize that they've gotten guidance from people along the way. Uh, those are the kind of people that you want around you that understand that it's not just an individual kind of thing. And then the easiest one that we've all we've been talking about this entire time is amiable. Do you like the person? Will you get along with them? It's the biggest gut feeling one. But those six things will really help you to understand if this person is going to be a long-term fit for you and your organization, regardless of what person or what role you're hiring them in for, they're going to be able to do it well for a very long time. Yeah, well, I think what, and I, I like that. I'm, I'm going to remember those, or I'm going to email you and get those, uh, or listen back to the interview. And get Wait, those well, how about this? Yourinterviewguide.com. I'll just send everyone there. It's yourinterviewguide.com. Yourinterviewguide.com. Okay. Yeah. You can download it. It's got all the attributes and even some example questions you can ask. That'll make sure you're getting those from your candidates. Right. So if, and I'll tell people if you're listening to this, I think state of the art these days in interviewing, if you're really paying attention to what companies are doing, is is you're not sending if you have somebody come in and they're gonna talk to four people, is develop those questions that attack those six A's that you came out with. Everybody asks the same questions in the same order so that you have a frame of reference when people start comparing and looking at answers, as opposed to everybody showing up in the interview and saying, oh, I've got my favorite question that I asked somebody. And right. it's like <sighs> How many restaurants are in LA? That's right. <laughs> right. Well, right. Whether it's a trick question or just, you know, give me your strengths and weaknesses, blah, blah, blah. Right. The fact is, we're horrible at hiring in general, and everybody's horrible at hiring. So the more you can make it a process, the more you can uh, standardize it. And I love the six A's. Those, uh, I love the fact they all start with A, um, <laughs> is that. Then you increase your odds of success of finding someone. You know, it's gone through a pretty rigid process so far. You get this last part; it's really critical. And maybe I, I still believe you have one person go through a deep dive on the resume, maybe the mm-hmm. hiring manager or so on. But everybody else, you know, give them questions and use the data points again. So then afterwards, everybody gets together. You compare the data. I like to create a scorecard for somebody as they go through their process. You got you know six, seven data points. We've got a benchmark. We're going to hire anybody that scores below X. And then after that's a judgment call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know the look. Um, I'm envisioning everyone listening to this right now, just getting this wide-eyed look of, oh, God, this is a lot to change. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, the, what we're talking about here is have a system. Yes. Just understand that you have one. It will be bad when you start. The fact is, if you have a system that you're doing consistently, you change the part that allowed a bad person to get into your organization. So well, you change that next time, it won't happen again. <laughs> That's what you do with. That's why you have data, right? right? That's why if you. That's why I think if you have the scorecard and you've created a benchmark and said, "Oh, this person didn't work out. Let's look at the scorecard." Oh, okay. Well, they scored low in this this particular attribute, one of the A's. Let's say, yeah. Let's be focused on that. Well, oh, we've had two now done that. We need to change. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. So as long as you know that there's a system and you're able to change it, you'll be just fine. All right, Brad. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We're gonna. We're going to do this again. This was a great conversation about this absolutely important topic. So, um, other than interview guide, what's interviewguide.com? Yeah, yourinterviewguide.com. Your interview guide. Any other place where people can reach out and find out more about you? Well, if this is stuff that you geek out over like me, uh, you can go and listen to my podcast. I go and I talk to companies that have been voted best place to work and CEOs and thought leaders and all these people who create great cultures and ask them how they build their teams. I mean, we go through their favorite interview questions and their process, and we just kind of dissect all these things. And that's where all this comes from. So just go to smallbusinesshiring.com, and that's what gets you all the episodes. We're up to 104 now. Uh, So we've got lots and lots of things you can go back and listen to. Uh, My suggestion is start with 100, because that's basically a recap of 1 through 99, (laughs) and uh, work your way on through there. All right. Excellent. Brad, thanks a lot. Great to meet you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, Brad. Again, that was Brad Owens. Brad's host of the Small Business Hiring Podcast. Joining me next on Accelerate, as always, at this time, is my friend Bridget Gleason. Bridget is Vice President of Sales at Logs.io. And today, Bridget and I are going to talk about our summer reading lists. 
Now, these are always popular episodes when we talk about books. And today we're going to dive into the books that we're reading this summer for, for work, for sales, and just for fun. So let's jump into it. Bridget, how are you doing? Andy, it's so, I'm doing great. Fantastic. It's so funny now that we're doing this on Zoom and that we're eyeball to eyeball. Eyeball to eyeball. I know. This is really, like, we've really taken the next step. Yeah. Yeah. Podcasting relationship. Right. We need to stop meeting like this. I know. I know. <laughs> Don't let anybody know. That's okay. Your biggest fan is, is Vicky, my wife. So she's. And likewise. She, she listens to every, every single episode. So. I know she likes it because I don't always agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nor does she. <laughs> we were talking on the phone. <laughs> she was, we were talking on the phone today. And I forget sort of how it came up, but she just sort of jokingly said, well, it's my job to tell you what to do. Aha. <laughs> now the secret comes out. <laughs> now. I always the truth is out. Job was. I wonder what your job was. Now I know. Uh, tell oh. me what to do. <sighs> yeah. Somebody needs to. Hey. So you just had a, a nice vacation in Canada. Said hello to all of our Canadian fans up there. Hello to the Canadian fans. It was in beautiful, beautiful Banff, which was just stunning. Are you hearing music? You've got music. You've got music. <laughs> Apparently. Isn't that funny? I like it. We don't know why. We don't know. That was a strange thing. I didn't touch my iPad. I used my iPad as my, my monitor, and suddenly it just started playing. I know, so that must mean something. It's a sign. I don't know what it's a sign of, but it's a sign. Well, it's interesting we were talking about Vacation, because that was actually uh, the next song up on that particular album is a song called I Need a Real Vacation. Um, so there you go. Fate talking to us. So See, you were, I, mean, you were, it, I think I brought that on. Like I'm talking about beautiful bands, the music starts. It starts coming. Sound like appropriate background music, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't long enough. Yeah, bands really just our annual family reunion. Every year we go somewhere different, and this year was beautiful Banff, and it was just wonderful. Yeah, it's on my list. On my list of places to go. I really want to, really want to go. So I bump it up. Yeah, it is. Well, I, as I told you before we started recording, is <coughs> somebody in our family has, uh, <coughs> she reserved a room at, I think, the Banff Springs Hotel for a potential wedding. So somebody's planning ahead. We'll see. Like reserved like a room, like a room. Like a, a wedding facility, yeah. I like it. I like her style. I like her style, like, yeah. I like her style. Like, go big, go bold. Yeah. So we're not going to reveal, we're not going to out who the person is, but... Uh, no, if, don't out who that person is. If she's I, listening, I, right. I that person's style. <laughs> well, we, like this, so we're recording this in July, and this is uh, beginning of July, just right after 4th of July. And yeah, we're we're family reunion next week as well. My wife's family... Uh, she's very close with her cousins, her first cousins, almost like siblings, and they get together eh, not every year. It's actually, it's, I think, about, they used to do it more frequently. I think it's been about 10 years since the last big one. So we're all going up to Bar Harbor, Maine. So Arcadia National Park, I've never been to, and it's uh, supposed to be quite beautiful. That's great. Yeah. So family time. We're talking about vacation. So today we're going to talk about books, our summer reading list. You know, we haven't done a book episode for a long time. People really like those. So I was, you know, and you're always reading, you're, so as am I. So I thought we, had, we would talk about that. I know. And then I always have to remember what's the latest. I read, uh, I read a lot. So the latest one that I'm reading or read, mm -hmm. and our team is reading it. So we often talk Perfect. about book, but we've got team reading it, is um, New Sales Simplified. Yeah, Michael. Mike Weinberg. Yeah. My buddy Mike. Good book. Very good book. It's, uh, I really like, it, it's actually something that our CMO and I are doing together and we're doing it with the teams together. Mm -hmm. It's very much, it's this, a lot on account-based marketing and targeted outbound and being more, you know, no spray and pray. And I really like this integrated approach between sales and marketing mm -hmm. and how to uh, go after accounts that way. So that's one that I'm reading or read recently and really 
um, have really enjoyed. Yeah. Mike really wrote a good book with that. And that's, I remember reading it uh, pre-publication. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And nice. yeah, be very impressed with it. So smart guy, um, a fun style. Yeah. The book really reflects his personality. Um, yeah, I reread a, reread a book recently that I had not read yeah, probably in 20 years. And it was by Harvey McKay. Do you remember Harvey McKay wrote the famous book, Swim with Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive? Yes. How to outsell, outmanage, outmotivate, and outnegotiate your competition. And uh, did that in preparation because I, I interviewed Harvey for the show. People listened to the show. Uh, by the time this episode with Bridget airs, won't, we won't have aired the Harvey yet, but it'll be coming pretty soon. Amazing guy, 84 years old, still sharp as a tack. Um, but I remember reading this book the first time and just thinking, okay, this guy really gets it. He, had, he was an entrepreneur. He, well, he is an entrepreneur, he, but he ran an envelope company in, huh. in Minnesota. And these were lessons basically learned from selling you know, corporate accounts for his envelope company. And yeah, just well worth people's time to read. It's still incredibly relevant. And one, and I think maybe I identified with a lot just because he really focuses on the importance of the relationship building, which I think is you know, underdone today. It needs to be overdone, uh, not enough time being spent on it. And he gave an example of, uh, I'd forgotten in the book, even though I had adopted some of this for, for my own personal methodology, is, is he had a 66-question Questionnaire that salespeople had to fill out about their sale, about their customers, about their prospects, and it wasn't they were going to sit down and and you know ask them sixty six questions. It was they over the course of talking with their prospects and getting to know them, building a relationship, they had to find out this information. And yeah, I mean, you talk about this is getting to know a prospect, the requirements, them personally, them you know what they're personal dreams, hope, fears are, their business dream, hope, fears, all, I mean, everything just, I just love it because it's, you know, you take that to a level that's that deep, you're going to win their business. I mean, you're, you dramatically increase the odds of winning somebody's business and being that intimately familiar with, with their business and their needs and requirements. And I thought that was just one example of something that I certainly didn't put together a 66 question questionnaire. <laughs> but yeah, I would, it wasn't unusual for me to say, yeah, there's like 20 bits that I should know about somebody and keep track of those. You know, I think the challenge I find in that, I think it's wonderful, is customers giving the time person the time. Well, but that, that speaks to the point is you have to have value, right? If you don't have value for them, if you're not relevant, then they're not going to give you the time. And so it's, you know, it doesn't operate on a single level, but... But if you, you know, if you understand the product you're selling, the value you deliver, if you understand how to ask questions of the customer about, you know, surfacing what their real requirements are, their vision of where they want to be, how you can help them there, um, yeah, you get you get time. But you have to earn that time. It's you know, they're not people don't give it out lightly for sure. No, they don't give it out lightly. But I do, I do like and appreciate just that personal. And, and really getting to know them and spending that time and not, not just being brochure where. Yeah. Well, it's still a people business. We are still in a people business. I, I don't, you know, we can put as much automation as we want into sales. It's still a people business. The technology is going to help us and it is helping us in some respects, but fundamentally it's still a person business. It is still a person business. That's true. So, yeah, it was really a pleasure to talk to Harvey, and, and I really urge people to grab the book. It's an easy read. Uh, it's a great book. I mean, a, a very yeah, personally great written. His personality really shines through in it. And, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's uh, good Midwestern wisdom. And he still lives in, you know, the Twin Cities. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm losing my voice a little. This is a long day of interviews. Um, yeah, another one I read that... I just actually just spoke to the author today before I was speaking to you. 
a fascinating book. You'd, you'd love this book, and I think everybody out there would love it as well. Uh, it was a Wall Street Journal bestseller written by Eric Barker. It's called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. The surprise- oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you said that because I've got, just when I tell my book next, you'll know why I'm having this reaction. Okay, what's it called? Barking Up the Wrong Tree? Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the subtitle, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong. Yeah, I've heard of that. And yeah, I mean, it's just... It, has sort of five or six themes he develops about success and uh, it's on my reading list. That's and, why right? and mindset and but it's just it's fascinating. I mean, it's it really makes you think about well several things. One is is why you know we personally might be successful or how we become successful in terms of of not just not just you know, skills, but also mindset and stories and, um, gosh, I mean, it's just our outlook on life, you know, the difference. (laughs) Yeah. He's got funny stories about, you know, science showing that talked about leaders, the two types of leaders being filtered and unfiltered. And you look at the description, it's like, this book was written before the current president assumed office and the unfiltered leaders, you know, can be quite problematic for, you know, because they overturn structure and tradition and so on and so forth. Sometimes can be effective, sometimes they're disasters. Um, but, you know, it's like, oh my God, this was, you know, now I, now I know the type, right? Now I can I'd put a name to the type. Um, but it's just wide-ranging and, and uh, probably not doing enough justice, but it's one of those books where, as I told him, I said, I probably went smarter off, smarter and better off had I decided to just highlight the things I didn't want to remember <laughs> because I've been fewer words than the, the notes I took. Yeah. It's just a funny. pages of yellow. So, and so this is what you think about success that science proves isn't. Yeah. I mean, for instance, he leads off with a story about high school valedictorians and yeah, high school valedictorians, you know, they succeed in high school. They oftentimes succeed in college. And he says, you know, they do well in life. But they, the science shows and the research shows on balance, they don't become the mega successes, you know, the really, truly successful. And he said that's in part due to the fact that, you know, they're valedictorians because high school and college have rules. And these are rule followers. They know how to play within the system and do a good job. Whereas if you look in the business world, is, uh, especially in you know, entrepreneurial ventures, but not even necessarily, is, you know, those who succeed oftentimes in a corporate world are uh, rule breakers, right? I mean, to some degree, rule breakers. You know, they shape the, shape the environment to fit their skills and their needs. And this, you know, I've talked about this many times, I think, on this show as well, is, yeah, I believe top salespeople the ones I've worked with, the ones I've worked, done work with, the ones I've personally worked with and earlier in my career, even me to some degree, is, yeah, rule breakers, the top ones. Yeah, the mm-hmm. minimum process, but, you know, they shape the process to fit their strengths and their unique capabilities. And so, you know, he talked about, yeah, valedictorians do okay, but they don't do great. And the ones that do great are... Um, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, he talks about... Um, I was looking through the notes I'd had for what I was doing him as, you know, he's talking about being the best is really just about being the best version of yourself. You know, how do you, and how do you achieve that? And talks about, you know, it was an interesting part that relates to sales, talking about, uh, you know, sort of a pessimistic outlook versus a confident or optimistic outlook. He said, ironically, you know, the science shows that pessimists actually are realists to some degree, Right. He said, you know, a pessimist forecast is more often right than an optimist's forecast, but the optimists are more likely to be successes than the pessimists, because the pessimists see the limitations, right? They, they see, have the fears of stepping outside the bounds and not being rule followers, where the optimists are like, yeah, maybe a little Sally Sunshine when it comes to my forecast, but I'm more likely also to hit the home run because I spot the opportunity that maybe somebody else doesn't and I go for it. Hmm. Um, uh, I said it. No, it, it, I, I like it. I like I like to be challenged 
around just assumptions that I have and ones that to some extent we may all have, or, or at least that yeah. are society. Yeah. Well, like I remember reading something a year ago, about some research, I don't know if it's out of Gartner or somewhere saying that, you know, people who are salespeople are too responsive, meaning too giving, uh, don't do well. And, you know, they're citing studies. He cites studies in the book showing that actually, ironically, yeah, givers may, may be at the bottom. And then there's uh, takers, people who take more than they give. And then there's matchers, people who give as much as they take or take as much as they give. He said, but at the top, in terms of income earners and so on and successes, are the givers again. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, there could be too much giving. But the fact is that people are based on the research that he was citing, is people who are more successful, you know, have a tendency to be more of a giver than a taker or a matcher, right? You know, they tend to be more in service to others than, than uh, expecting something from the world. That's great. Yeah. I, I think I read a blurb about that, um, just the givers, the takers, the matchers. Yeah, so I, I uh, highly recommend it for people. So that was... That was uh, that was one. You got another one? That was Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Barking Up the Wrong Tree by Eric Barker. I, I, and I said, okay, is this, you know, the title, play on your name? He goes, yeah. <laughs> okay. So the one I was going to mention, even before you said that, that I yes. wrote down, is called Barking to the Choir. Oh, haven't heard of that one. Okay. Well, no, you wouldn't have heard it because it's not a sales book. Well, that's okay. But, and, and it's, it's a... It's about this. He's actually a Jesuit priest mm-hmm. who has the largest gang intervention program in the States, perhaps the world. Hmm. And it is a remarkable story. And I think there are things that were touching about it on several levels. One, I think it's a, uh, our definition of success Mm -hmm. and how we define success and what's important to us. And it really also made me challenge sort of my own what's I look at his life and what he's doing and, and the impact he's having and would say, I can't imagine a more successful right in terms of his contribution. So I think to continually, I think, Andy, we're in a world and a profession where everything is measured by the revenue you produce and your contribution to the bottom line. And I think it's helpful to also remember that we are human beings walking on this planet um, and would be good to remember to be in service to others, not just not just in the sales realm, but I think here's, here's, that, here's that to an extreme. We talk about it in sales, and here's somebody who's taken it to an extreme. So I think just on the very human impact level, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a wonderful storyteller. Oh, I imagine. Where's, so where is he based? Uh, Los Angeles. L.A. Yeah. Well, I mean... in. Eric Barker's book, uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, is, is you know, again, he cites research. He said, you know, for people who are, you know, pessimistic and in outlook and, oh, my, my air conditioner on it. Okay. <laughs> people are probably wondering what the background noise was. I'm sitting here in our hot New York City apartment. Uh, Warm today. Yeah, with the windows closed so we can not be too disturbed. But, um and so, uh, with pessimists is, is, you know, people that are fearful, a little too, you know, interdirected that, yeah, as little as, you know, two hours a week of volunteer work can be transformative for, for those people because, you know, they begin to see that, oh yeah, yeah, A, I have it better off and B, I'm having an impact. And so if I have an impact here, maybe I can go back and have an impact somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great, great point, matching the two barking books that yeah. we're talking about today. Back-to-back barking books. Back-to-back barking. 
so his another as it may perhaps relates more to sales is again the storytelling mm-hmm. and it's what people remember he's a wonderful storyteller and andy he loves what he does and it is so evident and that part is also contagious to mm-hmm. really love what you do and to be able to communicate that and find you know joy and pleasure in it i think that makes it also yes. really difficult. and to your earlier point about um you know this questionnaire and really getting to know your prospect mm-hmm. i i think he also has not shied away from really getting to know this population right serves and if there's ever going to be a challenge of getting to know a population, our prospects are pieces of cake <laughs> compared to that. Yes. Com- compared to that and sort of what's required to get someone to open up to you and to trust you. We talk a lot about trust, mm-hmm. getting someone to trust you and um, to deliver on that. And mm-hmm. to be so I didn't think it about it so much in the sales context, as much as I thought about it in, first of all, he built an amazing business. This is not just give me money and I'm going to go make a donation. He's built, he said, the best way to prevent a bullet, it, it, the best thing to prevent a bullet is a job. A job, right. Give people jobs. Absolutely. So he's just created this this very big organization. Um well, but I, th- I think the thing that that you're getting at, though, and and you know, you, you said it wasn't a sales book, but anything that talks about trust, anything that talks about relationships, you know, as, as this whole premise of what he's doing is based on trust based relationships, right? If he doesn't get the trust of these gang members that are, you know, yeah. that are cities and you know governments and institutions unto themselves, then yeah, nothing they does ever ever is going to happen. Um, and have any sort of success, and that you know, that's why I keep trying to stress when people is, is you know, sales is is life, right? It's it's you know, life. How do we get through life? We build relationships with other people. We don't go through life as a solo entity, right? And it's the same thing true in in the profession we're in. Is we're dependent on having relationships with people, both external, the customers, as well as internal, the people that have to support us to help us, you know, enable us to get this job done. And if and if you fail at that relationship level, um, yeah, it's not going to happen for you anywhere. And so, one thing interesting in Parker's book, he, he talks about this idea of of you know self awareness is really being understanding what you're good at. And in sales, you know, there are people who are good at various aspects of it, and and that's okay. Or they approach the same task differently, right? You know, none of us form relationships the same way. Even some of the basics are the same. But it's what he talks about is the importance of understanding your story. And I think that's that's really important. Is you know, what's your vision of yourself? What is your story? When you what do you what do you say to yourself? Because you know, if you believe your story, then you know, if you can believe that, hey, I'm a really successful salesperson, your heart and soul. And you've got the skills, then yeah, you probably will be. Yeah, and I, I think also in salespeople generally, I know I am, are very driven by a goal. Like to have a goal, a purpose. Um, early on in sales, when I was at Xerox, we used to every quarter, sometimes we would have an annual, we would put up a picture of what we were gonna do when we hit a certain number or got mm-hmm. a target or did a your, your vision boards. Yeah, like your vision board. This is right. what, this is what's driving me. And I, um, I, I've sort of done that throughout the years of having different things. I just have this vision that really motivates and drives me to this point. Mm. And I would say for me, listening to uh, barking to the choir Oh, Andy, I would, I don't think I would be good working in a gang intervention program. I just, I like, I just, 
I feel I I I I I would try I want to try it, but I just feel like, oh my God, I'd be such a spaz. But what drives me is I would definitely get just I would love to spend more time and get involved. And so I I I look at that as a all right, do the startup thing for a while, but V2, Bridget mm-hmm. V2. We're I think we're well past V2, by the way. Oh, I, okay. Well, whatever. V, V, some big number. I, I know. V, I've been, I've been through several V's already. I know. Okay. V, big number. Right. right. V, big number. Um, that would be really inspiring. Yeah. Well, I think so. And I, I think uh, some, some message I was taking away from Eric Barker's book because yeah, his research shows that actually people earn more money when they devote more of their time to charitable or, you know, that type of activity. Is yeah, yeah. I mean, being more personally involved. I mean, it's easy enough to give the money. Um, it's harder to give your time. Yeah. I think that's for and me. It's sort of like you. It's that's the next thing. Is you know now, time. Yeah, and you know, to Andy, that's not something I have a surplus of right now. So no. that that's that'll be an interesting. That'll be a good uh, a good motivating next step. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Okay. We're done with this one. We'll talk about books another time. We won't wait so long because that's, that's a favorite All topic. Right. I know. Then they, then they stack up. That's right. Okay. Bridget, until next week. Until next time. Okay, friends. That was Accelerate for the week. First of all, I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank my guest, Brad Owens, and my partner in crime, Bridget Gleason. Join me again next week as I am joined by my guest, Jill Stanton. Jill's the co-founder with her husband, Josh, of Screw the 9 to 5, which is all about building a lifestyle business that enables you to live your life and build your business on your terms. And which, as you're here, uh, Jill and her husband, Josh, have done a good job of doing. And of course, no Accelerate would be complete without swapping stories with Bridget. As always, she'll be joining me for our weekly conversation. Be sure to join us then. So thanks again to our sponsor, Discover Org, for their ongoing support of Accelerate. And thank you again for joining me. Until next week, good selling, everyone.